Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke and we are here today in the studio with Iceland Review writer Ragnar Thomas. We're going to be taking a look at his most recent piece for the magazine, Balancing the Scales. Do the costs of fish farming in Iceland outweigh the benefits? On Saturday, October 7th, a tractor trundled through the streets of downtown Reykjavik with hundreds of protesters in tow. The procession was headed to Östervöllur Square in front of Iceland's parliament for a demonstration. Several organizations, including Landvent, the Icelandic Environment Association, and the Icelandic Wildlife Fund, had organized the event to protest salmon aquaculture and open-net sea pens, an industry that grew more than tenfold in Iceland between 2014 and 2021. During this period, annual production ballooned from nearly 4,000 tons of farmed salmon to approximately 45,000 tons. In 2021, there were, on average, about 16 million farmed salmon in open-net pens around Iceland. The reason protesters were demonstrating was because the growth of the industry had coincided with what some would call predictable problems. Aside from the potentially negative environmental impacts that salmon farming and open-net pens poses, including pollution from fish waste, uneaten feed, and chemicals or medicines used to treat diseases, Iceland had recently witnessed firsthand two of the industry's primary risks. The escape of genetically distinct farmed salmon of Norwegian origin from open-net pens, threatening introgression with wild populations, and the proliferation of diseases and parasites, most notably sea lice. Conversations with God Among those who took the stage on October 7th was producer, former journalist, and current board member of the Iceland Wildlife Fund, Inka Lint Karlsdóttir. A self-described advocate for animal welfare, Inka Lind confesses that October 7th was actually the first protest she had ever attended. If you had told me a few years ago that in 2023 I'd be standing on stage leading a demonstration, I would have laughed. Inka Lind, sitting across from me at the Café Brunsland Café in downtown Reykjavik, remarked, But there's just so much at stake, entire ecosystems, nature itself. During her youth, Inka Lind would accompany her father, a schoolteacher who enjoyed long summer vacations, to Thinkwadlavatn Lake. Together, they enjoyed languid days of fishing. Years later, her husband introduced her to fly fishing, and there was no turning back. I agree with Bupi. Fly fishing in a river is like having a private conversation with God, Ingalind laughed. It was in communion with her fellow anglers many years ago that she first became aware of the risks posed by aquaculture and open-net pens. She fears not only that the escape of farmed salmon from open-net pens, which she deems unavoidable, will weaken wild stocks, and worse, but that it would also harm the fly-fishing industry. I'm already hearing concerned voices from foreign anglers. Why should I pay to catch farmed salmon in Iceland, they ask. And you can't forget that angling is a huge source of income for landowners, guides, outfitters, accommodation providers, and so on. 
Ingalind remarked. A notable absentee. Among the estimated 3,000 people who attended the protest on Östervetler Square, there was perhaps one notable absentee. Minister of Food, Agriculture and Fisheries, Svantis Svavastotir. I don't know where she was, Ingalind recalled, but it was good seeing the Minister for the Environment. Even though aquaculture does not fall directly within his purview, aside from matters of pollution, he took the time to attend and receive our declaration, which goes to show that he cares. It gives us hope that he'll use his power to advocate for the environment and ecosystems. Despite Svantis's absence, Inka Lind has high expectations for the minister's forthcoming bill to be introduced to Parliament in January of next year. It will provide for harsher penalties for regulatory breaches, give institutions clear authority to revoke permits, and allow only one company to operate per fjord. Inga Lind believes that an improved regulatory framework and harsher penalties are steps in the right direction. Ultimately, however, we'd like to put an end to this industry, to drag the nets back on land, but we're clear-eyed about the legal obstacles and hope that the minister's bill, if passed, will prove as effective as possible. While acknowledging that the aquaculture industry creates jobs in rural communities, 0.3% of Iceland's working population was employed in the aquaculture industry in 2022, Inga Lind believes that its economic impact is vastly overstated. The business model is about scaling up, condensing production into a large number of nets within the fjords while employing as few people as possible. And the number of jobs doesn't increase as these farms scale up. Also, the greater the number of nets, the greater the risk of sea lice. They're slaughtering a million fish right now, as we speak, Inka Lind continued, for animal feed, because the fish are in such miserable condition that they won't survive the winter. Foreign ships are arriving to slaughter them. They'll be shipped to Norway and processed into fish silage. What other food industry would accept such mortality rates? There are 60,000 wild salmon in Iceland, and we're slaughtering a million farmed salmon right now. Wild salmon hatch and mature in freshwater rivers before undergoing smoltification to adapt to the ocean, where they grow to adulthood. After several years at sea, they return to their birth rivers to spawn, completing their life cycle. Deathly White Heads On the day of my interview with Inka Lind, news outlet Hamilton published an article featuring drone footage that shed light on the severity of a sea lice outbreak in Tolknafjordur in the Westfjords. The public had known of the outbreak since early September, but videos showing half-eaten salmon with deathly white heads languishing in pens operated by Arctic Fish, an Icelandic salmon farming company backed by the Norwegian juggernaut Maui, made abstractions more visceral. The footage was shot by kayaker and environmental activist Vega Gretarstotir. Vega was in Tolknafjordur, about three kilometers from the pens, when she launched a drone and let it hover some hundred meters above Arctic fish's open-net pens. As she began to zoom into the lice and bacteria-infested salmon, she was shocked. I kept zooming in further and further. 
I just couldn't stop filming. It was so horrific. I don't remember seeing a single healthy fish. I have never seen anything like it. There were fish swimming into each other, fish swimming against the pens, and then there were dead fish, Vega stated. Hamilton also spoke to Karl Steinar Oskarsson, head of the aquaculture department at the Icelandic Food and Veterinary Authority, who affirmed that, quote, no one had seen a lice infestation spread like this before. We're going to propose measures to ensure that this does not happen again. Among them is that salmon farming companies acquire better equipment to respond to sea lice in case of an outbreak, he noted. The sea lice also affected the fish pens of Arnarlax, an Icelandic company backed by the Norwegian company Salmar in Tálknafjörður, although to a lesser degree. Teitur Björn Teitur Björn Einarsson is 43 years old and a member of parliament for the Independence Party in the Northwest constituency. He was raised in Flatere in the Westfjords. During his teens, he spent a summer aboard a long-line fishing vessel and another summer employed in a fish-freezing factory. I belong to that generation that experienced the strengthening of small fishing villages during the 80s, when you had growth within the fishing industry, investment in ships, and so on, Tated remarked, sitting in the same coffee house where I'd recently spoken with Inka Lint. But I also witnessed the decline in the 90s, during a period of high inflation when banks closed off lending lines and companies were forced to merge or sell their quota. This had serious consequences. It impacted not just Flatere, but the entire Westfjords, Tetur continued. People moved away from small fishing villages, as well as bigger coastal towns like Isafjordur. Thankfully, in the early 2000s, companies recovered, and the small boat fishing industry expanded through the efforts of fishermen. The Westfjords began experimenting with aquaculture and open net pens in the late 2000s. About 10 or 15 years ago, we saw evidence that aquaculture and open net pens was both profitable and viable, Tater observed. Since then, there has been steady development, bolstered by investments from Norway, and today we're witnessing quick progress, great opportunity, and more jobs. This has completely changed aquaculture in the West Fjords, where it's on a par with the fishing industry. Tater admitted, however, that the industry was not without its challenges. It's clear to everyone, and to me, that this industry is problematic. Business-wise, the production time is long, three years from hatch to slaughter. Tetut also noted that aquaculture and open-net pens, similar to other agricultural industries, faces inherent risk factors such as diseases, environmental impacts, biological waste, and animal welfare issues. The industry's reputation, Tetut further acknowledged, had recently suffered two significant setbacks. The aforementioned outbreak of sea lice in Tálknafjörður and a recent escape of farmed salmon in Patrisfjörður. The Great Escape On August 20th, approximately 3,500 farm-raised salmon escaped through two holes on an open-net fish farm operated by Arctic Fish in Patrisfjörður a fjord in Iceland's Westfjords. For comparison, this represents some 6% of Iceland's wild salmon population. Arctic fish had not inspected the condition of the pens for 95 days. In early September, the Icelandic Food and Veterinary Authority 
confirmed that 26 farmed salmon, traced to the escape in Padrsfjordur, had been caught in several fishing rivers in West and North Iceland. By October, the Federation of Icelandic River Owners claimed that 344 farmed salmon had been captured in 46 different locations. Later reports indicated that six rivers contained upwards of 20 salmon, most of which were 54 in the Blanta River, located about 270 kilometers from the fish farm in Padrsfjordur. In response to the escape, the Directorate of Fisheries announced that it would provisionally extend the angling season until mid-November to increase the chances of farmed salmon being caught. Additionally, teams of Norwegian divers were dispatched to aid in the capture of the escaped fish, anthropogenic threats. The escape in Padrsfjordur prompted renewed concerns about the potential for farm-raised salmon introgressing with the genetically distinct wild salmon in Iceland. Such escapes have long been a concern in Norway, where open-pen fish farms have a much longer history. In a 2023 report from the Norwegian Scientific Advisory Committee for Atlantic Salmon, the authors wrote that, quote, both the number of Atlantic salmon returning from the ocean to Norway for spawning and the Atlantic salmon catches were among the lowest ever recorded in 2022, decreased to less than half of what it was in 1980. Despite this decline, the number of salmon spawning in rivers has risen, which the committee attributes to reduced fishing in both the sea and rivers. The declining rate of sea survival among the Atlantic salmon is a complex phenomenon influenced by a variety of factors, such as the impact of human activities, climate change, Atlantic salmon prefer cooler waters, overfishing of certain species causing disruptions to ecosystems, pollution, diseases, and parasites. According to the report, salmon farming poses a significant risk to the wild salmon population in Norway. Quote, the largest population declines are seen in western and middle Norway, and negative impacts of salmon farming have contributed to this. Salmon lice, escaped farmed salmon, and infections related to salmon farming are the greatest anthropogenic threats to Norwegian wild salmon. Indeed, because the state of the wild salmon population in western Norway is under threat, aquaculture is currently being scaled back in the area. Best Practices Despite his optimism for the future of the industry, Teitur Björn is concerned about large-scale escapes like that which occurred in Patriksfjordur. These events have proven hugely traumatic for the industry. The Patriksfjordur escape was a shock to both the company involved and the local community, which has high hopes for the industry. It's troubling that rules weren't followed. Additionally, the processes intended to induce infertility in the farmed salmon failed, resulting in sexually mature salmon swimming in much greater numbers than expected into various rivers in North Iceland. When asked if it wasn't reasonable to conclude that the threat posed by open-pen aquaculture to wild salmon in Norway, as outlined in the aforementioned report, was equally great in Iceland, Teiturbjot disagreed. First of all, regarding the decline of the Atlantic salmon stock, if you look back 50 to 60 years, that trend began long before the growth of the aquaculture industry. The same holds true in Scotland, Newfoundland, Alaska, 
The timeline doesn't fit. Those who oppose aquaculture and open net pens, however, are inclined to argue, as biologist Johannes Sturtlöksson did in an interview on the radio program Sprinkisandur in early November, that introducing additional risk to an already vulnerable population is not the most prudent way to proceed. Norway has a much longer history with his industry, Tater continued. They may have made mistakes. In Iceland, on the other hand, we're adopting the best practices from Norway over the past 10 years, not only in terms of operations, but legislation and regulation as well. These best practices, according to Tetur, include maintaining distances between fish pens and salmon rivers, implementing strong regulations, strict equipment standards and supervision, and conducting risk assessments based on scientific models. Many of these measures are outlined in Minister Svanti Svavastotis' proposed bill. Regarding the risk of introgression, Tetur, echoing an argument that has been made by Olavur Sigurgersson, assistant professor at the Department of Aquaculture and Fish Biology at Hollar University, maintained that there was no scientific evidence that a population of domestic animals bred for certain traits that made them less fit in the wild had ever supplanted a wild population or greatly damaged it. You need a lot of farmed salmon to swim into rivers over a very long time so that there is a danger of introgression affecting the wild populations, Tetur claimed. A few farmed salmon can swim up river and reproduce, but it doesn't have an impact. The 15th generation of farmed salmon, which has evolved traits like rapid growth, has diminished survival ability in the wild. Their offspring have almost no chance of survival. That's natural selection, which is irreversible. And yet, some farmed salmon and their hybrid offspring do, at times, survive. The largest escape in the history of open-pen aquaculture in Iceland occurred in 2021 in Arnefjörður, when nearly 82,000 farmed salmon raised by Arnalaks went missing from a damaged pen. The Icelandic Food and Veterinary Authority fined Arnalaks 120 million ISK, approximately 848,000 USD or 780,000 euro, for the escape and for providing incorrect information about the event during an investigation in 2022. This was the first time that such a fine was imposed on a salmon farming company in Iceland. Leo Alexander Leo Alexander Gudmundsson is a biologist at the Marine and Freshwater Research Institute. He's written several research articles on aquaculture, including some on the hybridization between wild Icelandic salmon and farmed salmon of Norwegian origin. When asked about the threat that introgression poses to the wild salmon population in Iceland, Leo begins by noting that the Icelandic salmon population is not homogenous. Native to Iceland ever since the glaciers retreated during the end of the last ice age, about 10,000 years ago, Icelandic salmon is uniquely adapted to its environment. It exhibits distinct genetic structuring, with notable differences between the salmon in South Iceland and those in other regions. There are, in fact, two distinct genetic groups of Icelandic salmon, with a mixing zone between those groups around Borgarfjordur in West Iceland. Genetic variation is also observed among populations within groups. Some populations belong to a single river, others to a system of rivers, Leo continues. So when we're talking about the risk of introgression, 
That risk needs to be framed in terms of specific populations. Certain local populations, particularly smaller ones close to aquaculture facilities, exhibit increased vulnerability to genetic disruption, Leo observes. Aside from the risk posed by introgression, farmed salmon and hybrids compete with wild salmon for space and resources in rivers. If mature fish farm escapees migrate into rivers and spawn, their offspring are in direct competition with the wild salmon, most notably at the fry and par stage, even if their smolts don't return to those rivers. As Leo notes, farmed salmon and hybrid juveniles grow faster and are more aggressive than wild salmon, which makes them highly competitive. Natural selection. While Leo agrees that a consensus exists among scientists that natural selection disadvantages hybrid salmon, the matter is more complicated. While natural selection often acts against hybrid offspring, the extent and consistency of this selective pressure are not fully understood, Leo explains. Not all hybrids die out. They manage to produce a second generation of hybrids. Our report from last summer shows this. There are hybrids that survive and spawn, so saying that nature selects against all these animals is not what we're seeing. As Leo points out, first-generation hybrids possess a 50-50 genetic mix from farmed and wild salmon parents. And if that hybrid mates with a wild salmon, the DNA is 25% farmed salmon and 75% wild salmon, then 12.5%, and so on. But if new genetic material from farmed salmon consistently enters the gene pool, the original genes thin out. It certainly may be the case that it can take a long time for wild populations to be completely composed of hybrids, especially when it comes to large populations far away from farms, but if we're talking about smaller populations near farms, it may happen much faster. Not decades, but years. And it's also a question of biological diversity. If farmed salmon continue to breed with wild salmon, it will represent a persistent intervention in the genetic makeup of these populations, with long-term effects on important biological traits. Regarding the discussion about wild salmon populations dying out due to hybridization, Leo observes, When there's hybridization within a population, the wild population has effectively been altered. It's not that salmon have stopped swimming up rivers, but that a certain genetic resource and a certain kind of biological diversity no longer exists. The unique genetic composition of the wild Icelandic salmon, adapted over thousands of years to the specific conditions of their native environment, is in threat of being diluted or altered due to the introduction of genes from farmed salmon in the event of continued escapes. Consequently, the variety of genetic traits specific to the wild salmon is being altered or even lost. These changes can have long-term consequences for the adaptability, health, and stock sizes of wild salmon populations. The bottom line, according to Leo, is that Icelandic salmon has a distinct evolutionary lineage. And it's this genetic diversity that's at risk due to hybridization with non-native farmed salmon. It's not that salmon and ison will become extinct in the sense that salmon will stop swimming into rivers, but that we're permanently altering their gene pool. Unfortunately so. During the conclusion of an interview on the program Dagmaul in late October, Gunni Gulbergsson, 
Senior Division Manager at the Marine and Freshwater Research Institute, was asked by host Eckert Skulason to comment on the, quote, seriousness of the threat of aquaculture in open net pens. After a brief pause and some hesitation, Gudne replied, Let's just say that I don't know, and that only time will tell. The whole picture hasn't emerged yet, and it will probably be some time before it does. Then, both Eckert and Gudne simultaneously remarked, Unfortunately so. Well, thank you for the very informative piece, Ragnar. No problem. Uh, I am going to start us off on a less serious note. Uh, I think that I mentioned this to you uh, when you were in the process of writing this. Uh, you know, I just kind of came across uh, one of these little map visualizations online recently, and it was kind of just a little snapshot of what's the major breaking story in the headlines for uh, like like the European countries at a given moment. Uh, and, you know, we're in, you know, Germany, for instance, it was uh, inflation and, you know, like, 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 like every country has its big, serious headline. Um, and then, you know, like you look at Iceland and it's salmon escape. Uh, and of course, you know, s- people like to kind of lightheartedly make fun and, you know, think, oh, well, like, like to have those problems. Uh, and I hope that this has kind of shown a little bit how this actually is, you know, quite important and actually rather serious. Um, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it may seem like first world, first world problems, but, um, diving into the issue, you certainly, your eyes are open to, uh, some of the big picture, uh, effects that we're looking at. And most specifically as noted in the article regarding, um, introgression and, uh, sea lice. Yeah. So for somebody who maybe knows very little about fish, um, you know, maybe you can just, and you know, like you do, uh, briefly mention this in the piece, but maybe you can just quickly break down, like, what does the normal life cycle of a normal wild Icelandic salmon look like? And why are salmon kind of like a special fish maybe? Yeah. I mean, uh, so Icelandic salmon has been, in Iceland longer than humans have. Um, ever since the last uh, sort of glaciers retreated during the last ice age, and that's somewhere around 10,000 years ago. So this is very much a native population and uh, has some claim on on the land and, and the right to exist in this particular area of the world. And um, of course, salmon fishing, angling, and, and fly fishing has been is, is a popular sport in Iceland and uh, one that is has has uh, a long history. Um, so yeah, I mean, basically, y- it's important to understand the life cycle of the salmon when you're sort of delving into this issue. And basically, uh, wild salmon they hatch and mature in freshwater rivers. Then they undergo a process called smoltification, which allows them to adapt to the ocean. So they return to the sea, uh, spend a few years at sea, growing and maturing, and then after that time, they return to their birth rivers to spawn, and thereby complete their life cycle. Um, and so, and so, how is that process different than for 
aquaculture and for farmed salmon. So like, are they kind of grown in one facility first and then moved out to sea? Uh, like, like what kind of happens to their instinct to like migrate and return when they're farmed? Yeah, that's one of the things that scientists have been looking into. And um, uh, we had a conversation before recording this interview where you noted that um, it was just extraordinary to see that some of the farmed salmon had actually swam quite a distance from the farms and had swam up rivers. Um, you know, uh, I think in one place as far as 300 kilometers, even more. Mm. Um, and so one of the things that scientists believe, at least this is what Leo Alexander mentioned to me during our interview, He's a researcher at the um, Freshwater Institute um, that being raised in captivity, um, it sort of messes with the salmon's homing capacity. Mm. So they are, yeah, they seem to lose this ability to return to their home rivers. And of course, they don't have a home river as they're raised in, in these in this case, in open net sea pens. Um, so they just have this instinct to return to a river, presumably. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've also uh, heard it put uh, pretty plainly. And, um, you know, so so there are areas off the coast of Iceland where aquaculture is restricted. Uh, for instance, uh, like for much of Breidafjordur in West Iceland, uh, aquaculture isn't allowed, and uh, along most of the north coast of Iceland, aquaculture is also banned. I believe um, it's allowed, uh, like near Akureyri, like 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 just in the fjord there. Um, but for the most part, it's banned across the north coast, and like this is to protect the salmon stocks there. Um, but you know, uh, quite plainly, uh, the farm salmon don't know that these areas are restricted and they just have this instinct to return to a river any river and you know sometimes these farm salmon do yeah i mean turn up in salmon rivers hundreds of kilometers away from where they spawned and you know so i guess it just kind of goes to show that like yes we can have these regulations and things and yet things do happen and you know like when there is an outbreak it is going to be clustered around that area but yeah you can't you can't tell a farmed salmon that there are restricted areas yeah, um, and I, I'd like just to add also that I'm, I'm of course, no expert on these matters, but I have been speaking to um, a few experts and, and doing some research on this topic. But yeah, it certainly does undermine this argument that, um, like Teitur uh, and others have mentioned, that we're learning from some of the mistakes made in Norway. Mm. Um, among them, you know, th this idea that keeping farms away from fishing rivers, popular fishing rivers, large rivers, is important. But as we see, no, um, sure, I mean, distance matters, obviously, as you say, um, these escapes are clustered around the farms, but we, we're still seeing salmon swim quite a distance into these rivers. And it's also um, noteworthy that the report that the uh, Norwegian scientific advisory committee uh released this year that you know they made mention of and of, as of others have pointed out that you know there are areas of norway where the wild stocks are diminishing at an alarming rate and 
what decisions have been made. They've decided to stop aquaculture mm-hmm. and open at sea, men's, sea pens around those areas, which um, is certainly some indication of of uh, yeah the the effect that that these facilities can have on on wild stocks if if um, operated in close proximity to rivers. And so, as I understand it, one of the major problems with the escapes is that, in theory, uh, these farmed salmon should be infertile. But one of the major problems is that a lot of the escaped uh, salmon, I believe one of the figures that I read was like 35% of them like had basically undergone puberty and were at sexual maturity. Um, and, you know, so it does seem like it's like, yes, there are all of these plans to kind of make sure that the farmed salmon have like a minimal impact, you know, and yet it's an imperfect technology still, I guess. Yeah, um, and uh, I suppose there's this lighting mechanism that was supposed to be employed at uh, the facility um, where the most recent escape happened, and this mechanism basically failed. So you had, as Tater mentioned, you know, this pretty significant escape, and the worst thing about it was that you had sexually matured salmon swimming into rivers, and that, of course, makes the likelihood of uh, hybridization a possibility. And I think this was one of the sort of central debates because, um, I mean, this has been a huge issue in Iceland. Um, we saw big protests earlier this year, and um, and I think mo- one of the more interesting aspects of doing research on this piece is really trying to, you know, hone in on the arguments on both sides um, because, of course, this is quite polarized. Um, you have people who are in favor of aquaculture. Um, most of those people are, you know, either from small fishing villages who are concerned about jobs and, and growth within vulnerable communities. And then you also have investors and, and uh, companies from the fishing industry. Um, but on the other hand, you have people like England who are anglers or fly fishers who are, you know, are, are more concerned about animal welfare, about protecting the wild stocks. And this issue of whether hybridization was a real threat was kind of vague. Um, it, was, it was kind of unclear to me going into this piece, well, like, who's, who's, who's in the right here? Because, I mean, individuals on both sides would claim that scientific evidence is supporting sort of their view on the matter. Uh. And that's why I think it was quite enlightening speaking to uh, Leo Alexander for some nuance. I mean, certainly, uh, and I admit to being no expert either, uh, but I mean, certainly just the numbers are rather striking. I mean, we have this essentially order of magnitude increase in the aquaculture industry in the tons produced. I mean, it goes from about, you know, 4,000 tons annually around what, 2011, 2012, to somewhere around 40,000 tons annually uh, today. Uh, You know, and then also just the fact that there are a million salmon being slaughtered when you compare that to the actual native wild population, which is what was it again? Around sixty thousand or so. Yeah, you know, I mean, take. that's that's quite a striking difference. Yeah, and I think some of the sort of animal welfare advocates, those who are advocating on behalf of the wild salmon, would they oppose um, such terminology as you know forty five thousand tons? 
they want to refer to it refer to the fish as individual mm. fish um, but yeah the the size and the scale of the industry even though it's relatively young and nice and is is um, yeah it's quite staggering um, one of the figures that we came across was somewhere around 16 million farmed salmon give or take at any period of time and I mean that really dwarfs the wild salmon population so it's easy to see how that kind of thing could become a threat because of course the farmed salmon that that's being raised in these aquaculture facilities is of Norwegian origin so that they're quite genetically distinct. Well, so uh, to just stay on this salmon escape though for a second. Um, so after uh, there was this most recent escape in Pachexfjordur, correct? Yep. Um, there were these specialists called in uh, uh, who were kind of, you know, essentially specialized scuba salmon hunters. Yep. Um, you know, there are some really kind of striking images and, you know, I mean, to a layman, like there is maybe a certain absurdity in looking at these images. I mean, of course, there is a responsibility to do the best one can to clean up this environmental disaster. And that includes hunting down the escaped salmon. Uh, but, you know, when you're talking about numbers in the thousands, there is maybe a certain comedy almost a certain absurdity to kind of just hunting individual salmon with like a harpoon gun um i mean I, actually do you know uh like how i mean obviously these are experts but like do you know off the top of your head uh like how does one distinguish a farmed salmon from the wild icelandic salmon like are they are they fatter are they larger i mean like do they all have uh these kind of lice infections that are really distinctive well, so I, I think there are certain sort of um, characteristics appearance-wise that you can discern, but ultimately you have to, if I understand correctly, you know, bring some of these possible escapees back to um, the lab to sort of do genetic testing to make sure. And that's what um, they've been doing at the Marine and Freshwater Research Institute is is trying to sort of identify the genes of, of uh, salmon across Iceland and various rivers. And, of course, one of the things that's important to note in this context is that, I mean, as we just began, we began this episode by sort of outlining the, the life cycle of the salmon, is that um, when an escape event occurs, um, I mean, the impact of the escape isn't immediately evident. Because, of course, you may have farmed salmon swimming up rivers and then mating, and then uh, you know it, it takes some time for for um, young salmon to hatch and to grow, to swim to rivers, to return, to swim to the ocean, to return. So I mean that's one of the things that um, the institute has been criticized for is that basically they're doing, you know, it's, it's 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 history that they're doing. They're always looking back a few years into time, mm. and they can't really give you a clear, sort of current state of whatever is going on. What? Um, and so, sorry, just to be clear, um, the the farmed salmon is that an entirely separate species? Is it a subspecies? Is it just a separate breeding stock of the same species? Yeah. So, I mean. As I mentioned in the piece, uh, I mean, salmon in Iceland, it's, it's uh, Atlantic salmon, which is, 
I gather, the same species as uh, the, the wild stock in Norway is also Atlantic salmon. Um, but these the species is highly adapted to its environment. So the Norwegian salmon, the wild Norwegian salmon, is different from the wild Icelandic salmon. And as Leo noted, you have subspecies within Iceland. So you have maybe two main branches in Iceland with mm. the third sort of mixing zone. But what's important to note is that uh, it's not just Norwegian farmed salmon or Norwegian salmon that's being raised off the coast of Iceland. It's, you know, farmed salmon that's been raised in captivity and bred for certain characteristics over generations so that you have, you know, this this basically domestic animal that's bred for characteristics like quick growth um, and, uh, well, yeah, mainly quick growth and, you know, to, to ensure that you can sort of harvest the greatest quantity of meat in the shortest amount of time. And as Leo noted, they're quite aggressive as well. And so they grow quickly and they're aggressive, which makes them highly competitive in, in wild rivers. So it's not just a question of will they hybridize, will they you know, um, mate with farmed salmon. It's also that they're com- competing for, for space and resources within the rivers. So I'm going to say some things that I don't believe, but just to play devil's advocate, um, what's so special about the Icelandic salmon? Uh, All of nature is one big competition. Natural selection is all about fitness and the species that kind of, you know, like, like according to nature, there's no one correct way for things to be. And it's just the species that end up where they are and kind of adapt to it the best they can. That's kind of all evolution is. Um, maybe these farm salmon are just one more kind of environmental pressure for the native Icelandic salmon. And like, like what's so particular about the Icelandic salmon that's worth preserving? Well, I think, again, I'm no expert in these matters, but that um, I think maybe Leo and others would argue that, well, what's unique about the Icelandic salmon is that it's lived in Iceland for thousands of years, and it's adapted quite perfectly to sort of the unique conditions in Iceland, making it highly fit and adaptable. And... um, so whenever you introduce, uh, you bring a basically domestic animal and you allow for the possibility of it to interbreed, you're basically weakening the survival capacity of the wild stocks. Um, and add to this the fact that, as noted in the article, the sort of sea survival rates of salmon have been declining since the 50s and 60s, presumably accord- um, owing to global warming and overfishing and various other um, sort of anthropogenic impacts. So what you're doing here is, I mean, adding another quite serious threat to a vulnerable population. And, um, I mean, as far as how unique the Icelandic salmon is, um, like, I mean, I, I can't really speak to that aside from maybe matters of survival and fitness, um, and other to say that also to say that I mean this is just a, a living thing that has made its home here on this island for thousands of years 
And um, I think that gives it a certain birthright and a certain right to exist. And that's setting aside all of sort of, I mean, we've been delving into some of the threats of introgression and the threat of hybridization, but then there are just real animal welfare issues of, I mean, these are living things who suffer pain and um, presumably we would want to try to minimize the pain suffered by the species by not introducing a threat. Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you one more time and then let you off the hook. All right. Um, so I imagine an argument that a lot of people inside the aquaculture industry might make is something like this. Um, we have a growing world population. People need food. They need high quality food, like, you know, like the protein and salmon. Salmon's a very popular fish. Uh, like, like even a lot of people who don't really like seafood that much like fish. Um, aquaculture is just in a sense, a more sustainable way of getting, of, of, of meeting this large demand than fishing in the ocean and fishing wild stocks. And maybe it's not a question of, you know, because I mean, if, if I do understand it, like there are some people that don't want to just regulate and limit this industry, but actually ban it, if that's correct. And so maybe somebody inside the aquaculture industry might think, you know, well, that's very wrong-minded and like this is kind of the best way that we have to meet growing food demand and things like that. Yeah, I, I think sort of the, those people who would like to ban aquaculture, they're specifically referring to aquaculture and open net sea pens. A lot of people have argued that you should just keep the pets, pens on land. That's actually the best way to avoid possible hybridization and sea lice infestation. Um, of course, that's a more difficult way or more costly way to operate these farms. They require more energy. Um, with these open net sea pens, you're basically outsourcing the cleaning of the nets and the disposal of waste to the ocean, which also has possible bad side effects. Um, but yeah, as, as far as, I mean, that's one of the more common arguments that you hear from proponents of aquaculture and aquaculture and open net sea pens is that it's a way to feed a growing and increasingly hungry world. Um, I think those who push back against that often argue that, well, you need quite a bit of protein. I think somewhere I, I've heard, and again, these aren't verified facts, but this is something that's often thrown around in conversations is that it takes something like three times the protein input to get the protein output. People have also mentioned that, well, some of the feed uh, that's going into these aquaculture facilities are caught off, for example, the coast of West Africa um, with anchovies, I think, sometimes being used as, as feed for the for the salmon, which is a way of taking away from a local food source for local populations and then exporting it with mm. all of these sort of climate change impacts, carbon footprint, et cetera. Um, and then you're producing a product that is costly. Uh, you know, salmon isn't cheap. It's not, you know, it's not accessible to everyone. 
But of course, I mean, I, I, um, in Norway, for example, they produce, I don't know how many millions of salmon-based meals every day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, these are, these are complex issues. And I think speaking to scientists and people who work within the industry, you know, you, you, you get both sides of the coin. But um, so um, on that note of in aquaculture, you know, we can essentially feed the salmon for free or they can kind of dine at the ocean's expense. I mean, obviously it's not that simple, but it is more cost effective to do it in the ocean than to do it on land. Um, and that kind of reminds me that uh, in writing this, we were also revisiting uh, an archival piece from Ice Interview back when some of this technology was still kind of new. And I think it's always kind of just interesting when we're talking about a current issue to also look back and see how we talked about it then. If I'm not mistaken, the actual headline of that issue was dining at the ocean's expense. Uh, and you can correct me if that's not the exact wording, but that was at least the spirit of the headline. Yeah, I think it was grazing free at the ocean's expense. So yeah, I mean, that was, um, we looked back at some of the early experiments that were being done in aquaculture in Iceland. And what can you kind of say about like how the general attitude around this has changed? Well, I think uh, the first facilities in Iceland, um, there was one state-operated facility in Kotlafjordur, um, and that was really where you had Icelandic salmon who were hatched and then reared and then released into rivers sort of with the aim of bolstering natural stocks. Um, and you had some experiments being done there showing that, well, there was a pretty promising rate of return from sort of these farms back into local rivers. Um, and early on, we had uh, experiments, uh, not like state-run, but private sort of companies trying to, you know, s start up this industry in the vein of Norway. Um, but all of them in the early 80s were, I mean, they failed. It, it, it was basically too costly to raise the salmon. The prices that you would have to obtain on the international market weren't really competitive. And I mean, there was just a lot of, um, so I guess the attitudes back then were a little more optimistic, although people were generally, I think, pessimistic about some of the conditions in Iceland uh, not being favorable mm. to aquaculture because in Norway you have these sort of long fjords um, that make for pretty peaceful conditions in the water itself. And the water yeah, they also have these uh, like so-called scary gardens where you yes. have this kind of protected coastline with these kind of natural reef formations. Exactly. And while Iceland, it's, it's more open. The weather is... It fluctuates dangerous storms and also the the water is um slightly colder oh. so all of those things proved well will seem to be problematic for the industry in, in those times and, and indeed it wasn't until sort of the early aughts or late aughts that we see this industry sort of coming back again and all of it of course um most of these companies have been acquired or have some affiliation with sort of these big Norwegian manufacturers. So finally, the note that I would like to end on is when I attended uh, this 
aquaculture protest. Uh, something that I found really interesting as, you know, a little bit of an insider, a little bit of an outsider is a very distinct national pride in the fish. Um, you know, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of protesters with these just kind of nice home knit, uh, sweaters with like a salmon, uh, as the pattern. And there are a lot of signs that just simply said, long live the Icelandic salmon. What do you think that kind of says about the national character and like what the Icelandic salmon is not just as a wild animal and a food source, but as a kind of part of the nation somehow? Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a fisherman myself. I haven't spent, I've been sort of fly fishing, angling once in my life. Um, but I think it's, uh, I mean, it's it's a popular sport and so many people have fallen in love. I think first and foremost with just this feeling of, you know, standing, wading out into the river, you know, you've got this sort of flask of alcohol probably in your breast pocket. You're completely, you know, by yourself. Um, your companions are somewhere close by, of course. But it's just this feeling of complete communion with nature, standing in the middle of a river, probably being slightly tipsy, and, you know, experiencing a feeling that mankind has sort of carried with them since the dawn of the human species, which is hunting, probably. And, and you know, you're... I think it boils down to that. I mean, a lot of people I know who do this, you know, they just, they love that feeling. And, and of course, that feeling would be impossible if it weren't for the wild salmon. So I don't think it, it may not be, um, how do you say it? I mean, there's a sort of tinge of selfishness maybe to it that, <laughs> that, that, that the fish is enabling something, um, which is... But uh, but of course, when you put this to to anglers or fly fishers, I mean, as I did to Inkalint, for example, of like, well, I mean, if wouldn't the salmon probably prefer to just be left alone in the river and not being hunted, even though the majority of rivers today have sort of the catch and release um, rule where you know you 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 return the salmon back to the river to preserve the wild stocks, and uh, sure. These people say, of course, um, that's probably what they would prefer. But hey, hunting is a part of, you know, our, our culture and, and being a human being. And um, so, so yeah, I think maybe that's my take. At least my feeling is that when it comes down to it, it's this it's this feeling of being in nature and and hunting this animal. Awesome. All right. Well, One final note. Yep. <laughs> just to. Uh, uh, because we, we spoke a lot about this. Um, uh, I just wanted to say to listeners, as, as of course, unlike uh, maybe the New York Times or some of the bigger publications in the world, uh, we don't exactly have uh, the benefit of sticking to one beat. <laughs> if I have a beat, it's usually been sort of culture and music and, and sort of society and, and stuff. But um, which is also the great thing about this job is that you sort of are forced to widen your purview and, and step into subjects that maybe you're not the most expert at. Um, but I think this was one of the pieces which, you know, you really felt that this is, I mean, this is such a hot topic in Iceland and it's a source of such debate. And I think you just realize, um, you know, speaking to people and doing research and thinking about it, that I mean, this is a really complex, complex um, 
issue and, and story. And I, I encourage everyone to, to um, you know, if you, if you want to learn more about the Atlantic salmon and, and some of this, this debate that's going on to look at some of the research from the freshwater and marine, the Marine and Freshwater Research Institute. And, uh, you know, to, to think of maybe this piece as, as a kind of gateway into, into some of the heavier stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, thank you so much for talking today, Ragnar. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's longest-running English-language magazine focusing on nature, politics, and community. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts.